lives there for eight years and they are incredibly productive as soon as she gets there really um she gets out all her old manuscripts the story of my father and his egg the fact that he made the world's largest jeweled egg i suppose the passion and interest in that came first the kaczynski family business is something that i grew up with it has been found you know that there's Merkur's mine and there's other examples of individuals finding gold showing up sort of decades later it's not impossible. Some other sources, which again are all kind of murky, hold that La Pellegrina was not actually discovered until the 1570s. So it could not possibly have been right. the pearl that Philip gave to Mary. Welcome to History Gems. And in today's episode, we're going to be chatting about one of the 17th century's most interesting characters, Christina of Sweden, and most especially her crown and the way in which she lost it. Here to tell us more is the brilliant Amy Saunders, who's currently studying for her PhD at the University of Winchester. Christina could be seen to take um, Elizabeth I especially as a model, um, as another example of a Protestant queen who had remained unmarried um, and had managed to retain her throne and rule her country. When she's refusing to get married, um, she just stands up and says, I don't want to be used by a man the way a peasant uses his fields. Amy's specialism is 17th century gender, sexuality and monarchy. And she's the author of an open access article, The Afterlife of Christina of Sweden, Gender and Sexuality in Heritage and Fiction with the Royal Studies Journal and has published or is in the process of publishing several book and conference reviews with the same journal and with the court historian. Amy is also a content creator for the History Indoors project, and I'm really looking forward to chatting to her today. Hi, Amy, and welcome to History Gems. It's a huge pleasure to have you with us today, so thank you very much for joining me. Hello, how are you, Nicola? I'm really good, thank <laughs> you. I'm, I'm really excited to be talking to you today, and I thought that perhaps for those listeners who are less familiar with Christina of Sweden, a good place to start would be if you could just tell us a bit about who she was. Yeah, sure. So Christina was born in 1626 um, in Sweden, obviously, um, to King Gustavus Adolphus II, who was King of Sweden, um, and his wife Maria Eleonora of Brandenburg. Um, now, Maria had actually had several unsuccessful pregnancies prior to Christina's birth, um, and she and the king had also had another daughter who unfortunately had died before her first birthday. But when Christina was born, um, she was temporarily believed to be male, um, and news spread um, that the queen had given given birth to a son and an heir and everybody celebrated. Um, but the story goes that not long after, the women attending the Queen realised that they were mistaken and that they didn't dare tell the King. Um, so Christina, who herself was writing years later, tells us that her aunt took the baby to the King um, and presented it in, quote, such a state that he could see for himself what she dared not tell him. Um, now, Gustav um, apparently did not worry about this change of events at all, um, stating that Christina would be clever for she'd already tricked them once. Now, sadly, um, he wouldn't get much time to get to know his daughter um, because he died on the battlefield in 1632. Um, and this is what um, left Christina to become king um, at only six years old. Um, so I say king here because that was the term used in Sweden at the time um, for a regnant monarch. Ah, oh, okay. 
Yeah. I mean, what an interesting, what dramatic start in life, actually, that she had. I was going to ask you about what's so interesting about her, but I've really gleaned a great sense of what's so interesting about her from your introduction there, which is wonderful. But what I'd really like to know is where did your interest in her begin? Because I think that you wrote about her for your undergrad dissertation and I'd really like to know what inspired you and what captured your imagination. Yeah, so um, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Winchester, I knew that I wanted to do my dissertation on something to do with early modern um, gender and sexuality and how it's presented in modern popular culture. Um, so I went to my supervisor and I already had um, James the Sixth and First in mind and Henri the Third um, in mind to explore, but I really wanted to also have a woman um, in that mix of comparisons. Um, and my supervisor turned around gave me a popular biography um, by mm. Veronica Buckley on Christina Sweden and said, I think this is um, who, you, who you'd like to fit in. Um, and I went home and I read it and I was like, yes, <laughs> this, is, this is the person who's going in my dissertation. Okay. I've got that book as well, actually, but I haven't read it yet. So perhaps I will go away and read that <laughs> after our <laughs> conversation. Um, so now you talked about the fact that um, Christina would have been well, she would have been called a king rather than a queen um, by reason of her, her regnant status when she succeeded to the Swedish throne. And what I would like to know is how was the idea of female rule received in Sweden at the time of Christina's accession? So were the Swedish people fully open to the idea of having a female monarch or was it still quite a new and perhaps unpopular concept? Yeah, um, so I think this is really interesting because there had only been one Queen Regnant um, in Sweden before this, um, who was Margaret I um, in the 14th century. And she'd been Queen of Denmark and Norway and of Sweden. Um, and she was quite celebrated and given the title of Lady King for having been um, so practical and such a such a good um, queen. Um, but Christina, the way that she became queen, as we said, was that her father had died. Um, and he died on the battlefield and had been a great military hero um, for Sweden in the Thirty Years' War. So Christina was his only heir, um, but the her accession to the Swedish throne in 1632 was not a guarantee. Um, now, this was because the Vassa dynasty, um, to which she belonged, was a relatively young one um, at the time. And in times gone by, Sweden's monarchy had been elective. Um, and the idea of hereditary monarchy was normally um, referred to in the idea of like male succession. Um, so it was definitely different um, that Christina was going to become um, queen. Um, but her father had been such um, a military hero that people kind of accepted her as his child um, mm. and could see him in her, in her looks and in her personality, um, that lots of what you get um, in the sources is um, people saying, oh, well, she'll be great because she's his daughter um mm. so yeah it could have it could have gone another way someone else could have tried to claim the throne um but at the time they were in the midst of the 30 years war and things um so i think it was just decided that it was easier um to go with christina um and it didn't really change the governing of the country all that much because gustav had been absent so much um off in the war um mm. that there was already kind of like other men in Sweden doing the governing 
if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then they helped Christina. So it was fairly smooth in that way. Okay. Okay. So she was able to sort of, in some ways, um, benefit from her father's popularity perhaps as well. Yeah. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit about Christina's coronation? Because I think that I'm right in saying that she wasn't crowned until six years after her accession. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so like I said, she'd been under this regency um, until she turned 18. So up until that time, they looked after both her and like Sweden's governing. Um, but when it ended in 1644, she was officially queen in her own right um, and without a regency anymore. Um, But as you say, it wasn't until 1615 that she received a formal coronation. Um, Now, this was in part due to the end of the war and the need to consolidate peace, um, but also because there had to be time for Christina's successor to be chosen and approved. Um, So Christina hadn't married um, and she didn't want to get married. Um, So, yeah, they had to pick who would come after her um, in case she didn't get married married and produce her own heirs um so in october 1650 christina's cousin charles who had previously been suggested as a husband for her was officially confirmed as her heir and it's after that moment that the coronation takes place in stockholm um now the fact that it took place in stockholm is a break with tradition um, and was considered bad luck by lots of people um yeah so it had usually taken place in ups i'm gonna say this wrong um (laughs) upsala um okay uh, yeah, so it was a new thing to for it to happen in Stockholm. Oh, that's very interesting. So why, do we know why then she chose to, or if she, if it was her choice, do we know why Stockholm was chosen? Yeah, I think it's because, um, so at this time, um, Sweden was having uh, more time to kind of spend on cultural endeavours um, and Stockholm had kind of been like the governing and things have been relocated um to Stockholm um and she'd spent a lot of time there um so yeah I think it it's just as things have been changing um Mm. over the time that she's been alive really um like the shifts in the cultural center Mm. okay and I think I mean I was I was looking just yesterday because I think that there's an engraving which shows what a huge procession and um, magnificent occasion her coronation must have been. I mean, it looks like it was completely fabulous and like they pulled out all of the stops. Um, And thinking about this, that sort of moves me on to the next point and and thinking about um, the, the Swedish crown jewels and the regalia that would have been used by Christina at that time. And I think I'm right in saying that Christina used the crown that was worn by her mother. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, so it is. So with her coronation, it was absolutely massive. Um, They basically partied for two months. Um, Like fountains ran with wine and beer and there was fireworks and banquets and all these amazing temporary arches and loads of processions and things. Um, So, yeah, it was a really big deal. Um, But, yeah, at her coronation, as you say, she wore her mother Maria Eleonora's crown um, and she had it altered slightly. Um, So it's beautiful. It's it's gold and it's got um it originally had these four arches um and a kind of 
this all like foliage pattern on it um okay. and it had these uh, black enamel um and white and red stones on it which represented um the Vassa dynasty of her father and the Brandenburg dynasty of her mother which mm. um so she then altered it slightly um and added some more arches to the design um and then wore it um for her coronation um she did have some new things made um, in terms of regalia, though, um, so her coronation robe was ordered from Paris and made especially for the event. Um, and it was this is beautiful. It's velvet, um, purple velvet. And it was originally decorated with hundreds of crowns and sewn um, in pearls and had this amazing fur, fur collar. Um, and that was actually worn by ver- at various coronations by other Swedish monarchs um, all the way up to 1720. Um, so, yeah, that's uh it was wow. all rather fancy. <laughs> wow. It sounds like a party that I would have wanted to be a part of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I was quite interested when you were saying that um, that Christina had these additions made to the crown. So do you think, and this may be speculative, I don't know, but do you think, can we learn anything about her tastes or her personality from this? Or, I mean, do you think that she just wanted to bling it up a bit more or... You know, can we can we learn anything about her from this? Um, I'm not too sure on the crown front. Um, I think that potentially she just wanted it to look a bit different. You know, that had been a queen regent, uh, a queen consort's crown, and she's a queen regent, uh, regnant. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> yeah. Um, so that might have had something to do with it. Um, but in terms of in general. Christina doesn't seem to have been that interested um, in jewellery for the sake of jewellery. So in most of her paintings, she's quite plainly dressed. um, But what you do see her in a lot is like a string of a single string of pearls. Um, So looking at her paintings, I'd say if she liked any piece of jewellery, it would be it would be pearls because they're in her crown. She wears them a lot and she quite often they're accompanied by black stones. So again, that link between her being both of the Vassa dynasty and of the Brandenburg dynasty. Um, mm. So, yeah. <laughs> that's, no, that's quite interesting because, yeah, I was I was going to ask if she was a queen who, who enjoyed luxury trappings and enjoyed jewels. And I, so I'm quite interested to hear you say that she perhaps wasn't too bothered about those. And, and the pearls, I'm just wondering, I'm just, this is just a thought really more than a question, but, you know, I'm thinking about um, contemporary queens at that time and thinking about, I think, am I right in thinking that is Henrietta Maria queen of England at the same time as... Christine. Yes. Yes. Okay. And I know she seems to be painted in pearls quite a lot, doesn't she? I think. Um, And I'm just sort of wondering, yeah, if if, if that was a thing at the time that um, that queens liked pearls. And and I'm also wondering, you know, again, this is more of a kind of a thought, I guess. But thinking about the fact that um, you pointed out that Christina didn't get married and thinking about the way that in England a bit earlier obviously Elizabeth I was quite fond of pearls and they were used to symbolize virginity and I'm just wondering if we could perhaps you know that may just be a step too far but I'm just wondering if maybe that was something that um Christina had in mind when she was wearing pearls too maybe you know yeah I I think it's interesting because um 
pearls do feature a lot um, in um, queenly portraits of this period. And like mm. you say, Henrietta Maria liked them um, and Elizabeth I liked them. Um, and Christina could be seen to take um, Elizabeth I especially as a model, um, as another example of a Protestant queen who had remained unmarried um, and had managed to retain her throne and rule her country. Mm. Um, but in terms of her virginity, um, Christina's involved with all kinds of scandal. Um, oh. <laughs> so I don't think um, that she's necessarily going to be trying to be like, oh, look, I'm a virgin queen. Um, oh. That's not that's not very Christina-like at all. Um, okay. okay, I didn't realise. Well, I knew. So I think that there were some kind of hints about her sexuality am I um, I don't know if that's if that's right I'm sure something's sticking in my mind saying that you know that there was some talk that she may have preferred women I don't know is that is that accurate yeah um so Christina's sexuality um is really interesting um and she's connected throughout her life um to both men and to women um but I would say that they're probably more romantic relationships um so when she's refusing to get married um she just stands up and says I don't want to be used by a man the way a peasant uses his fields (laughs) so she was very much against the idea of getting married of being subordinate to her husband um of having children um she seemed very disinterested um in the physical um acts of sex so i think potentially her relationships were more romantic um than sexual um in that way um so yeah but lots of scandals she's connected um with a cardinal later on who then later goes on and becomes pope and there's all these great <gasps> engravings of them like sneaking around the vatican grabbing each other's bottoms um, oh, oh so, my goodness scandalous yeah, so much scandal <laughs> so i don't think wow. she's done very well playing the virgin queen oh my goodness no i get that's that's quite shocking i didn't i had no idea that's <laughs> okay so yeah the uh definitely then the comparisons with elizabeth in terms of pearls and virginity are a step too far <laughs> <laughs> um, that's clear <laughs> um it's interesting you mentioned the vatican i'm going to come back to that in a bit so um yeah let's just hold that thought a sec but it's interesting um thinking about Christina's crown as well which we've spoken about which of course the crown was viewed as the ultimate symbol of monarchy but what's remarkable is that Christina's story doesn't end in that way with her wearing the crown does it so I think can you just talk to us a bit about her abdication and what happened to her Yeah, um, so Christina abdicates in 1654 and she's actually had the idea of abdication like floating around in her mind for um, since 1651. So just a few months after her coronation, she mentions to one of her very close friends that she would like to think about abdicating. Um, So, you know, she's just had this massive expensive coronation, everybody's celebrating and then she's sitting there going, actually, maybe I don't want this. Um, so her potential abdication at this point starts to be discussed about um, by those around her um, and they try to, you know, tell her it will be OK and we're going to support you and you, you, you don't need to abdicate. Mm. Um, and she continues to people continue to be like, oh, well, you know, you could get married um, and then you'd have some help. Um, and Christina's just like, no, that's not happening. Um, so her abdication is 
fueled by a number of things. So while she loves to be the centre of things, she likes to be surrounded um, by art and the education that her privilege allows her, um, mm. and she likes to be involved in politics, but she wants these things to be on her own terms. She doesn't want to be woken up every morning knowing that she's got to go to hours of council meetings and that she can't go riding or hunting or whatever. Mm. Um, she, she wants to you know, be more in control of her own life. And she'd hoped that kind of formally naming Charles a successor would have eased things up a bit for her, and it doesn't. Um, so she starts to form a plan um, to convert to Catholicism, which was a really risky plan, considering that Sweden is really strongly Lutheran at this point. Um, so she starts meeting in secret with all these different um, Catholic priests and these ambassadors from Catholic countries, um, and trying to kind of find somewhere that she could go um, if she abdicated. Um, and yeah, she settles, um, she gets it into her head that she wants to go live in Rome. She loves Italian art. She loves classical literature and history. Um, and so when she abdicates, it's kind of quiet that some people around her know that she intends to convert to Catholicism, but it's not public. Um, and so she goes off, um, she leaves the country, um, leaves Charles as king, um, abdicates, crosses the border um, in men's clothing, like rides away with a really small group of people um, in a very kind of unqueenly way. And this is commented on at the time that, you know, her cousin would have put ships at her disposal to take her wherever she wanted. Um, and instead she like gallops off into the distance before the banquet's <laughs> even really over. Um, <laughs> so yeah, she sits in Holland and she waits in Holland um, until she is formally invited um, to Rome by the Pope um, because they're basically, they're a bit suspicious about how serious her conversion is. Um, oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. And is this the same Pope who she may or may not have been involved with? Uh, no, this is a previous Pope. So this is oh, right. um, Pope okay. Alexandra, the, um, Alexander VII. Um, so, yeah. Ah, okay. Right. And, and then she... I guess does she does she then just sort of live out the rest of her days in Rome and die quietly? <laughs> um, <laughs> no. no. <laughs> um, so um, strangely, she would have liked to have died quietly, but I'll get onto that in a minute. Okay. Um, so she she goes to Rome. Um, she secretly goes into Rome first off, um, and goes and meets various um, cardinals and things, and they triple check that she's definitely serious about Catholicism <laughs> then she leaves Rome and then she has a big um triumphal entrance into Rome so pretty much like a second coronation like there's a massive party everybody's um really excited um because this is a queen who has given up her throne and appears to have given it up solely to convert to Catholicism which is a massive win for the Catholic Church um, in the 17th century so she turns up they have this great big party um, and it's really interesting actually because again they make these temporary arches like she had at her coronation and lots of the imagery used in them tries to link her to biblical heroines from the Old Testament um, oh. And this is the Pope at the time trying to mitigate her gender ambiguities. Um, so because she dresses as a man a lot and she likes traditionally masculine activities um, and obviously her sexuality has been called into question. Um, the Pope's like, if we're going to have you, you're going to have to look, you know, like a 
a biblical heroine, a virgin queen, <laughs> someone who's like um, the savior of her people. Um, so he oh, tries to link her to all these different um, biblical women to to kind of give her a bit of a a better polish, basically, yeah. to allow her into the Vatican. Oh, wow. Gosh, how dramatic. So there's me thinking that she basically abdicates and gives up all of these trappings of royalty, but it doesn't sound like it's like that at all. No, she really becomes like a, a bit of a celebrity, to be honest. Everybody wants to know her and meet her and um, pamphlets about her go off all over the place. Um, and yeah, she ends up settling in Rome, um, having a gorgeous house that she fills with art. Um, she's constantly running out of money and constantly getting loans from other people and getting money from Sweden and getting money from the Pope and things like that. And um, basically she just has lots of um points where she creates more scandal um and she oh, goes gosh. off traveling a few times so she goes to france and she actually meets henrietta maria who you mentioned a w- little while ago oh. um she actually meets her when henrietta maria is in exile with the royal family um with the british royal family um in france so yeah she she explores she spent all of her life in sweden um, under these kind of very strict, this is what she's got to do every day. These are all the things she has to do as queen. Mm. And suddenly she has the freedom and the and the ability to go do everything she ever wanted, um, basically. Be all because she's free of the crown, basically. Yeah. yeah, that's, I mean, that's that's just absolutely, that's astonishing. <laughs> um, and I think I'm right in saying that she is, she's, remembered in Rome today isn't she I think there's some kind of memorial to her somewhere yeah so she's it's amazing she's one of only three women to be buried in the Vatican um yeah so she's actually buried um in the Basilica of St Peter's um and she's got this amazing monument it's absolutely huge um and it's really interesting um actually in terms of her crown um because the monument has a image of a crown carved into it um sitting on a pillow above a carving of her um kneeling in front of the pope showing that she gave up her crown for catholicism um yeah. so she just because she just uses this great bit um of catholic propaganda basically um in the 17th century um and with her funeral um as i said a minute ago she actually she wanted a quiet funeral she didn't want um lots of pomp and ceremony but the catholic church were like oh we could use her a bit more um, <laughs> so they throw this massive funeral um and it's depicted in a very similar print to the one of her coronation um and you can see all of the religious all of the catholic like religious groups um oh. on this print um so really reinforcing um that she died a catholic queen um so yeah and did she this memorial was that something do we know I, i'm presuming that that considering you've just said that she wanted a quiet funeral I'm presuming that this memorial wasn't done under her own instruction no yeah this was coming from this was coming from the Vatican um so yeah she wanted to be buried quietly um and she'd left her will um where a lot of her stuff went to the cardinal who later became pope who Ah. she was very close with um and some of her stuff um was left to a family that then ends up in the Prado collection in in Madrid. So lots of her art and stuff, you either find it in Madrid or you find it in the Vatican. 
Oh, right. That's really interesting. I think I, when I've, I mean, I had no idea when I visited the Vatican that she was buried there. I had no idea, actually, that there were three women buried there either. So so that's really, really interesting. And um, I mean, yeah, the memorial, that sounds wonderful. It makes me want to go back again and and, and see that. And um, and her actual crown, I think, also still survives in Sweden, I think. Is that right? Yeah, it does. Um, So it was used as a royal crown in various ways up until 1818, um, even though it was altered slightly again um, in 1751 and they added diamonds and things to it that were there to represent the sun and the moon and the stars. Um, But the crown and the coronation robe do still um, exist and they're um, displayed in the treasury at the Royal Palace um, in Stockholm. Um, And the um, robe is amazing because the crowns and the pearls were actually taken off of it oh. um, but you can see the shadow of where they were um, so it's really fascinating because until you get until you look at it really closely um, it just looks beautiful and purple but actually you can see um, the marks on it when you get up close oh wow that's really neat I guess they would have sold those off or you know repurposed those somewhere else I guess but how interesting um wow Now, I was going to ask, actually, finally, if you could tell us something interesting that might surprise us about Christina. But I feel like (laughs) I feel like everything you've said has has surprised me. (laughs) So perhaps I'm going to change that slightly and ask, is there anything that you found particularly surprising about Christina when you were researching her or anything that that really struck you as being particularly fascinating yeah so I just think she's just a fascinating character all over um and I think she first caught my interest really because in her narrative we see this person who feels so trapped by societal norms um, and frequently expresses her frustration at this and I think that's something um it's an emotion that a lot of people can connect with um And I really like this image of her being um, in Holland between her abdication um, and before she gets to Rome, because basically she's running around Holland and she's just so excited um, Mm -hmm. because she's experiencing all these things that she wouldn't have got to experience um, if she had remained in Sweden and um, would have been unlikely for her to experience if she'd remained queen. Um, And there's these stories of her like running around and just taking her leave of people without like the proper ceremony and um, just picking up all these random people along the way and making new friendship groups and bringing people (laughs) along with her um, and seeing all these places for the first time that really fills her with wonder. Um, And again, I think that's something that a lot of us can appreciate and understand maybe even more so when we're allowed to travel again after having been stuck at home for a year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, and I think as well, like she's depicted in several popular culture um, depictions. So there's three films about her, oh. um, which seems like a lot. Yeah, <laughs> um, it does, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she obviously grabs people's attention, um, but outside kind of our circle of queenship researchers, um, yeah. like there's most people haven't heard of her until I start getting excited. <laughs> because we've because I've dragged them to the Vatican or because we've gone to you know we've seen her in an exhibition or something so yeah I think it's interesting as well that she clearly um gets people interested and people clearly want to know about her yeah. um but that she's still in kind of the category of lesser known queens um, yeah yeah she's still sort of living in the shadows a bit but 
I have to say, certainly for certainly for our listeners, I think that I mean, you've done an incredible job of telling her story and bringing this really intriguing character out of the shadows. And I, I mean, I, I, I'm definitely going to go away and, and pick up this book. Perhaps you should write a book about her. Perhaps you should tell <laughs> her story. More <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there you go. Something to think about. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you so much for, for just highlighting how extraordinary she was. And I mean, yeah, like just what a story. It's just incredible. It's got me feeling very excited now, which is great. So very last of all, Amy, for those listeners who are interested in finding out more about you and your work, of which I'm sure there will be many, where can they find you? Yeah, um, so you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm very easy to find. Um, <laughs> or um, for my stuff on Christina of Sweden, I recently published um, a open access article with the Royal Studies Journal. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me today, Amy. It's been brilliant to speak to you. And thank you so much for teaching me so much about this extraordinary 17th century queen. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode and we will be posting images of Christina of Sweden's crown on our social media platforms at History Gems Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, please press subscribe and leave us a rating and review and don't forget to tune in for the next episode of History Gems. Thank you.